good morning. If I have not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Ryan Smith. I have the joy and privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights Baptist Church. We're so glad that you are here with us today as we open God's Word together. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're in the final week of a brief three-week series studying the doctrine of the church. Now, why the church? Well, because as has been said, the doctrine of the church is one of the most undertaught and underexplained doctrines by the church. Therefore, as we see daily around us, there is much confusion about what the church is, what it is to be or to do, and biblically, what it means to be part of the or even a church. So in the first week, we said the church matters, that God has saved for himself through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, a people for his own possession. And through 1 Peter chapter 2, we saw that these are not people chosen for their brilliance or their good looks or natural talents. No, this is the bride of Christ created and loved by God from all different backgrounds and abilities, united as a spiritual structure built upon the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone in order that they might display God's glory and salvation even to the least of us. This is the universal church. The Revelation 7-9 picture of all who are saved throughout time, space, and history from every tribe, language, and nation. This is the church. But then last week, we said the local church matters. That God in his sovereignty has organized the universal church into visible, relational, accountable, local churches. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 to see that God has united individual members of the church in local bodies meant to build themselves up in love toward Christ-likeness. And we saw in Ephesians 4.15 that the mechanism for this mutual benefit and growth within the local church is speaking the truth in love. And we really drilled down on the essence and the necessity of this idea of speaking the truth in love as being the foundational way a healthy church is conformed together to become more like Christ. Okay, and that sounds really easy. But if you've been a part of a local church for any amount of time, you know it's much harder than it sounds. We can be hesitant to speak. We can speak things other than the truth. We can speak the truth, but do it not in love. There are many, many ways that as broken sinners breaking and sinning against one another, we have opportunity to be united positionally as a local church body, yet be divided functionally and relationally as individual members. We see this all the time. We can easily slip 
into relational facades where, where no one gets too close to anyone else. And we just try to, to get by, looking really shiny and clean, hoping that no one will notice our smudges. But is that God's design for the local church? Is the local church just a place where you fake it till you make it, as long as you like the music and the preaching and you have some friends there? I mean, what does it look like to function as a member of an Ephesians 4 healthy local church body? What does it mean to bear with one another in love, with humility and gentleness and patience, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? What does it mean to speak the truth in love as a member of a local church? Well, that's our focus today. Church membership matters. You know, there are many ways that we could go with this, and there's no way that we can cover the entire spectrum of church membership in this limited time. That's why, again, I invite you to Wednesday night cross-training at 6.30 p.m. as we walk together through the book Rediscover Church right in this room. But when we say the word member, we're not using the term as in a member of a club. The church is not AAA. It's not crunch gym. Membership in a local church is not something we ascribe to if we like the benefits or if the cost isn't too high or the people seem nice and it's convenient. When the Bible speaks of being a church member, it speaks in terms of being a member of a body. Romans 12, 4 through 6 says... For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body... Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So the Bible says that in the same way that our physical bodies are composed of many members, so too is our spiritual body. The local church. Now, what qualifies someone to be a member of a local body? Well, again, as we discussed in week one, it's a credible profession of saving grace by faith in Jesus Christ. To be a member of a church, one must first be a member of the church. Okay, so, so when we introduce someone as a member of this local church, we are not just saying that this person likes our music style or has some friends in our small groups or can stay awake during my preaching. 
Okay, we're, we're saying that as best we can tell, this person is a Christian. Saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to him and seeking to trust and follow Jesus in all of life for the rest of life. Therefore, as a member of the universal church, in obedience to the scriptures, they are seeking to unite with a specific body under specific leadership based on a specific confession. They are covenanting with us to trust and follow Jesus together. Their burdens are now our burdens. Their joys are now our joys. There is an expressed expectation that this person will actively be a part of the body, seek to equip and serve other members of the body, share resources with the body, gather with the body as able, and glorify God together with this local family. We're promising to act out Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 together as one body now with this additional member. Specifically, that Ephesians 4, 15 mortar that holds our structure together, speaking the truth in Love. So the question that I want us to address today is how do we do this? How do we speak the truth in love as members of one local faith family, as a body? And you know, in one primary way, it's something that we do week in and week out. Colossians 3 says that when we gather, we are to speak the truth in love to one another through song. That's one reason that Nathan does such a fantastic and diligent job to ensure that everything we sing together is doctrinally true and rooted deeply in God's word. When we sing together, we are speaking the truth in love together. Also, when we sit together under God's word in expositional preaching, when we interact with God's word together in small groups, these are all ways that we speak the truth in love collectively with and to one another. Yet there is another very strong aspect of speaking the truth in love to one another that is both described and prescribed in Scripture by Jesus himself. It's something that is quite clear in the Scripture, yet is often debated or contested and kept at arm's length or even ignored completely in many of our local churches. And that is the vital, foundational, and biblical practice of local church accountability. Now, some people use the phrase church discipline, which is completely fine. But I prefer church accountability to describe the ongoing process of biblically speaking the truth in love with one another for God's glory and for our good. You know, the concept 
of church accountability addresses several questions of church membership life. Such as, as part of my body or my family, if I see another member begin to wander physically or spiritually, how do I rightly react? Who do I rightly involve? How do I rightly help this person function as a part of our local body? How do we rightly speak the truth in love to one another, which is so foundational to our unity and our growth together in Christ-likeness? These are really big questions. The good news is that the scripture gives us a simple step-by-step format for doing just that. So Matthew 18 We're going to be in verse 15 through 20 primarily, but this text comes in context of one of our favorite passages as believers. One that is often quoted, yet often removed from its very important context. Jump up a few verses to Matthew 18, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And we love that, right? Jesus leaves the 99 to find the one. He sacrificially searches us out to rescue and bring his sheep home. And that is completely true. But what's often overlooked in the compassionate love of this text is how Jesus says he goes about leaving the 99 to find the one. That none of his sheep should perish. It's the pathway to reconciliation that Jesus prescribes and describes for taking care of and protecting and rescuing members of the flock who may go astray. It's often not understood that this famous passage of gentle, loving rescue is told within the context of the local church. This is not just a text about salvation. It's a text about local church accountability. Because look what immediately follows those verses. Verse 15. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This first step of caring for wandering sheep is incredibly simple. If someone is sinning, a member of the church family, a brother or sister, is to discreetly yet intentionally go and speak with them face to face. You know, what kind of sin are we talking about? Well, this isn't about hiding in a bush, watching and waiting for someone to mess up. Aha! No. This isn't gotcha accountability. 
No, every single one of us, including myself, sins and does so daily. That's why we all need Jesus. Yet when followers of Christ sin against God, we don't like it. The Holy Spirit in us convicts us of it. We want to turn from it and seek God's forgiveness for it in Christ. The type of sin that this passage is addressing is willing, habitual, and unrepentant sin. It's behavior or belief that is clearly and consistently contrary to Christ's commands in the scriptures. Not just something that someone is doing that we don't like. Now, biblically, this could be maintaining false beliefs. Spreading false teaching. Or wayward living contrary to God's expressed word. Now... What are we to do if a member of our family, of our flock, of our body goes astray into this type of sin? Well, Jesus says we don't don't shove it down. We don't wallow in it. We don't passive-aggressively shun the person with a cold shoulder or make an ambiguous post on social media We don't retaliate or gossip or slander the person. We go to them. Go and tell him his fault between you and him or her alone. The goal is to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Now, why is this the first step? It's because going directly to our brother or sister in the church protects the church from the devious and divisive sin of gossip. As one pastor said, in such situations, love him or her enough to privately address the sin. Love him enough not to talk to everyone in the world about it. Love him enough not to sit back and watch him wander deeper and deeper into sin. If the person responds rightly, Jesus says, you've won your brother. Your communion in Christ may even be that much deeper as a result. Okay, so so note, this step doesn't require or even involve the official organization or leadership of the church. The first step of church accountability is between one member of the body and another member of the body alone. And this is where 99.9% of all church accountability happens and is intended to happen. In a healthy church, a healthy family, a healthy body, this should be happening all the time. Speaking the truth face-to-face, one-to-one in love. That's the foundational step of church accountability. You say, okay, that's simple and easy enough, Jesus, but, but what if that doesn't work? What if that brother or sister continues to progress in their willing, habitual, unrepentant sin? Well, 
Jesus tells us. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus says that even in this next step of accountability, the circle remains very small. Take one or two members with you back to that person, face to face. And why two or three witnesses? Well, because it's biblical. This comes from Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A fact must be substantiated by two to three witnesses for it to be considered true. So this isn't just a he said, she said. This is, this is a very small widening of the circle. This, this second step is not about ganging up on or building a case. It's about broadening perspective. Gaining wisdom from counsel. And leaning into different weights of relationship. You know, if, if one person confronts you about something, it, it can be kind of easy to, to brush off. But if several people confront you about something, it's more likely to be taken to heart. And again, what's the goal here? The goal is to restore the brother or sister in Christ by speaking the truth in love. To protect the one who is wandering away from the flock. To do what Paul said in Ephesians 4 and help make sure that each part of the body is working properly so that the body can build itself up in love and Christ-likeness. You may say, well, simple and easy enough, right? But what if that doesn't work, Jesus? What if even after being confronted by two to three people who care for them, they still persist in willing, habitual, unrepentant sin? Well, Jesus tells us. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. That's ecclesia, this specific group of people that this person professes to be a part of. Okay, and this is where some of us start to squirm. I get it. I mean, do we we really need to air one another's dirty laundry? This doesn't sound real, real gracie. This could be uncomfortable. (laughs) This could be divisive. This could be messy. No, 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 no. Bad bad idea, Jesus. Bad idea. Remember, as members of the church united in covenant community, we are not out to get or to fight with one another, but to fight for one another in Christ, even if it means at times getting uncomfortable. Now, this step isn't about broadcasting sin. It's about putting the full force of the body behind making sure this one part is taken care of. As one scholar says, the entire church is saying together, we love you. And we want you to come back to Christ. 
God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. This is how Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one. Now you may say, well, that's less simple, Jesus. That's not easy enough. But what if that doesn't work? What if even after being confronted by the whole church, a person still persists in their willing, habitual, unrepentant sin? Well, Jesus tells us. Verse 17 goes on. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, what, is, what does that mean? Well, the phrase a Gentile and tax collector means someone who is not a part of the family of God. A non-Christian. Let them be to you as one who does not have a credible profession of faith in Christ. Someone who is bearing no fruit of the Spirit, who by all accounts and observations and despite every means of accountability from those they have asked to hold them accountable, persists in their willing, habitual, unrepentant sin. To recognize someone as not being a Christian means that you can no longer in good conscience affirm this person's profession of faith in Christ, if there still is one. Just as when the church publicly admitted them for membership, when they said, as best we can tell, this person is a Christian. Part of the universal church. Therefore, we receive them credibly as a part of our local church. In the same way, this is the church publicly admitting that as best we can tell, we can no longer affirm that this person is a Christian. We were wrong. We can no longer affirm them as part of the universal church, which means they cannot rightly be a part of a local church. Now, this step is not the church doing something, but recognizing something. It's not about condemning. It's about diagnosing. It doesn't make the person not a Christ follower. It states that the body can no longer affirm that they are a Christ follower because they aren't following Christ. Willingly, habitually, and unrepentantly, despite every biblical measure to help them do so. Now this doesn't mean that the person has lost their salvation. That is impossible. It simply means that though they participated in the things of God, adopted a certain ethic or morality, they never fully received the salvation of Christ by grace through faith, through complete surrender to begin with. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, now, 
that may sound harsh. And some of us have seen this step of church accountability done in all sorts of very bad and divisive and unloving ways. That doesn't mean, however, that the step is inherently bad, divisive, or unloving. This is how Jesus, the great shepherd, says that he protects his beloved flock. It's, it's not the unloving shepherd who goes after his sheep. It's not the unloving flock that wants to protect its weaker members and identify when a wolf may be among them. It's not unloving to protect the identity of the flock by saying, I don't think that's a sheep. It's not unloving to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector. I mean, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He sought them out with much grace and love and compassion, with gospel truth. Church, the unloving shepherd stays home. The unloving flock stays quiet when one of them is missing. The unloving flock stays silent. When something is amiss. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He also shows his love for us. And that when we begin to fall into sin. He sends us after us. As someone once said. Church membership is being asked. Am I my brother's keeper? And answering, yes. And it's seeing that commitment all the way through, even up to the point where that person ceases to credibly have been my brother or sister to begin with. Then I treat them differently. I recognize they are not wandering from the way. They don't know the way. I seek not to keep them in the local church. I seek to bring them into the universal church. I don't share communion with them. I share the gospel with them so that they might be saved. This isn't about retribution. It's about rescue. And in verse 18, Jesus immediately assumes the objection. And he's completely right. Who are you to judge? What gives this people who sin too, by the way, the right to take these steps? Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so to that objection, Jesus preemptively steps in and says, no, this, this isn't about them. Jesus says, it's about me. 
Jesus says, I am the judge. And I give them the right or the borrowed authority to make these accusations so long as they are making them according to my word. Jesus says this isn't their want, it's my way. And because it's his way for us, Jesus promises his presence with us. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This famous and beloved verse in the context of local church accountability. As pastor and author David Platt says, and summarizes so well, if someone comes to the church and says, I am living in sin and I am unrepentant, I will not turn to Christ then we can say to that person with authority, you are living bound in sin and your sin is not forgiven. Now to be clear, their sin is not unforgiven because we said so. Their sin is unforgiven because Christ has said so in his word. Similarly, if someone says that they are willing to turn from their sin, then we can say to them with full confidence that their sin is forgiven. And they are now free from it. Jesus has given us the privilege of proclaiming what he has said to be true. He's saying that we have the full support of the Father in heaven when we gather together in unison to confront sin in the church. Jesus knows that church discipline or accountability is not easy. And that we will be tempted to shy away from it and not carry it out. He is encouraging us with the resources of heaven. Now, church, that brings up a lot of questions. And that's okay. We can talk about those questions. But from this text, we see clearly that a primary way Jesus holds us close to himself is by holding us close to a healthy, local Speaking the truth in love, church. When I was about three years old, my family and I took a a vacation to the beach. It was just me, my parents, and my sister who was about five at the time. Now when you're a kid, the beach isn't about relaxing. It's about work. And I was working, building the world's largest and most ornate sandcastle. Now, somewhere in the process of building the world's largest and most ornate sandcastle, I grew weary of the sand falling apart, and I decided I needed some water. really just needed to to pack it in. Now, the beach was full of people that day. My parents had to set up camp about 100, 150 feet from the shoreline. So for me to get the water I needed, I had to go quite a distance. Now, not really thinking about it, as a three-year-old, I set off just running with my bucket to the water. And when I went running, my dad yelled after me, but I I wasn't listening. I, I was focused on my task. What my dad yelled was, Ryan, 
don't go to the water. Because unbeknownst to me, my mom had stepped away to go to the restroom. And he was in charge of both me and my sister. And so he couldn't just leave my sister to go chase after me. But he couldn't let me just run off into this crowded beach, trusting that I would find my way back. We needed to stay together. And once I had gotten to the ocean and filled my bucket with water, I finally turned to look for my family, and I realized they were nowhere in sight. And so I, I figured, okay, I must have veered off course somewhere, so I just started running, running back the way I came. What I didn't know was that I actually started running the wrong way. And so further and further down the crowded beach, away from my family, I was running as fast as my little legs would carry me. And meanwhile, my mom returned, my dad told her what had happened, and they set out together with my sister to look for me. Now after a while, when they couldn't find me, they, they flagged down a, a lifeguard on, on one of those ATVs. And when he couldn't find me, he got on the radio and got a whole team of lifeguards on ATVs to look for me. And after they couldn't find me, everyone on the beach was made aware that there was a little three-year-old boy in a little red swimsuit who was missing. And that my parents were bad parents. <laughs> Just, kidding. Just kidding. Now... Eventually, some people found me, and I didn't grow up as an orphan in Florida. Okay, but question. What if, in that situation, my parents had just said, you know, I haven't seen Ryan in a while. Was that his name, Ryan? It's too bad, I really liked him. Hope he lands on his feet. You know, I mean, we don't, we don't want to cause a, a scene. Let's, let's just hope he, hope he comes back. And in the meantime, you know, we got a, we got a good thing going here. Let's not disturb the peace. That, that, that could get messy. What would you think of my family if that had been the response? It would be shockingly unloving and virtually unthinkable for a family to let one of their members simply wander off into lostness. How many times, however, do we do that very thing with our spiritual family? You know, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. It's too bad. Hope they land on their feet. I mean, we, we don't want to cause a scene. Let's just, let's just hope they come back. Let's not disturb the peace. That, that, that could get messy. It should be shockingly unloving and virtually unthinkable for a church family to let one of their members simply wander off into lostness. Okay, now that, that's a two-way street. We can't simply wander off without telling anyone. We have to be proactive. We have to be known. 
We have to be in small group community, not just large group anonymity. For us to be held accountable, we must be accountable ourselves. But biblically, to be a member of a local church means being held accountable to and accountable for one another. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against him, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5, 19 through 20 says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, there are many, many other facets of church membership that are so important to cover. And I pray that we'll get to each and every one of them over time. But if you started to stray from the faith tomorrow, who would know? What would happen? Are you joined in purposeful, relational, covenant community in a way that would protect you if you began to slip? Are you integrated, recognized as a member of a body of believers, a local church? You know, I fear that much of our church culture today has been bent toward making it very easy for isolated Christians to feel safe when they are not. And in the midst of such a culture, church accountability is one of the most loving things that we can ever do as church members. Weekly, Together in worship, nightly, together around dinner tables, and daily together in coffee shops and over lunches. Membership is meaningful, and meaningful membership matters. Let's pray. Oh God, you are the great shepherd of your sheep. You love us.
not because there's anything lovely in us, but because you yourself are love. And you extend that love even to broken, unworthy sinners like me. But God, you do not leave us alone. You give us spiritual brothers and sisters and grandmas and grandpas, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, aunts and uncles. You have given us the family of the church. And God, we don't always represent that well. I thank you for this local church. I thank you for Arrow Heights that shows itself continually to be so loving, to want to surrender to your way and to your word. But God, I know no church is perfect this side of heaven. So God, we pray, thanking you that in the blood of Jesus Christ, we can come to you for forgiveness, we can come to you for hope and joy and peace and purpose in this life and eternal life in the next by laying our lives and our wills down to you and taking up yours. God, I pray that you would help us to do that daily in every interaction with one another, that we might glorify you to the watching world around us and that we might lovingly help one another. Jesus, it's in your loving and holy name that we pray. Amen.